HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Our family, we like to do a low country boil. Now, for those of you that don't know what a low country boil is, that is a big old giant pot put over some propane heat with uh, andouille sausage and shrimp and corn and potatoes and carrots. Um, And we'll probably even throw some sweet potatoes over in there and even some eggs over in there. We boil all that up um, and then just toss it out on some paper um, and just dig right in. So that's kind of like our pre-Thanksgiving. That was Matthew Rayford sharing just the beginning of his Thanksgiving Day menu. Matthew is a sixth-generation farmer from Brunswick, Georgia, who's now cultivating land that has been in his family since 1874. Matthew's also the host of HRN's new show, Jupiter's Almanac. We'll hear from him again later about another regional dish he's preparing. With Thanksgiving right around the corner, we've been thinking about the many ways this holiday bolsters colonial narratives, as well as opportunities to push back on them. This episode spotlights individual people, dishes, and ingredients that are decolonizing our food system. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. We start by revisiting the Thanksgiving myth and investigating the forces that continue to shape Native Americans' food access and culinary legacy. Then we'll share a recipe that brings Geechee culture to the Thanksgiving table. We track the history of a West African rice strain that is reintroducing a rich heritage, as well as environmental resilience, to American soil. And finally, we learn about how one food justice collective is working to bring power and healing to Puerto Rico. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal. For your ears. Meat and three. First, Seth Hartman takes a look at how one nonprofit is working to support Native American food sovereignty throughout North America. 
With Thanksgiving around the corner, the famous tale of a shared harvest between native peoples and European colonists seems to be on display everywhere you look. This story is taught to American children at a young age and is often told with crucial pieces missing. After all, centuries of disease vectors, slave trading, and forced resettlement don't seem like details worth celebrating. Despite the continued whitewashing of the Thanksgiving myth, it does highlight the great wealth of agricultural knowledge that the Wampanoag tribe shared with the first wave of Puritans. With this in mind, why is there little to no representation of Native American cuisine on the Thanksgiving plate, or in American culture at large? Well, obviously the story of Thanksgiving was um, intentionally um, created um, at the turn of the century in the early 1900s as a push to create um, what's very similarly this patriotic education that the current administration is trying to push right now. That's Sean Sherman. He's the CEO and founder of The Sous Chef, an immensely popular catering and food education collective based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's also the co-founder of the nonprofit Natives, or North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. In order to give me the full scope of the organization's actions, Sean explained what the term food sovereignty means to him. So when we're thinking about uh, food sovereignty, it's healthy food access. Um, and when you're thinking about indigenous food sovereignty, it's also cultural food producers, diverse food systems, local control of food systems, and not governmental control. Um, we need to have access to our own indigenous education. And we need environmental protections to protect all of this amazing resource around us that's just been destroyed and destroyed for the past couple centuries. According to case studies from the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, Local control of foodways is positively correlated with poverty reduction, biodiversity conservation, cultural sensitivity, democracy, and value for money. In short, this is an issue that impacts a heck of a lot more than what's on your plate. Unfortunately, there are countless underserved communities in both urban and rural areas across North America without easy access to nutritious foods. These are often labeled as food deserts, but Sean has an issue with that definition. When we're thinking about food deserts, um, I almost hate that term sometimes because so many amazing communities lived in the desert. And if you're out there with that knowledge, you look around and you see nothing but food. Through the vast majority of history, indigenous peoples in North America were able to thrive in diverse regions due to generations of community sourced knowledge. However, as Sean points out, this crucial information has largely been stripped from indigenous communities nationwide due to involuntary relocation and cultural assimilation efforts by the U.S. government. How has the U.S. dismantled indigenous food systems? You know, it goes quite a bit back, but it really, um, for the United States in general, it's really in the 1800s that you see the largest piece of it. Um, you see it starting um, even right before the 1800s with our first president, George Washington, and the complete destruction of the tribes and the Five Nations um, north of where they were throughout New York, and General Sullivan's march of just complete destruction and burning crops and pushing people completely out of the nation. Um, but we see this continuation happen throughout the 1800s with um, you know the, the Trail of Tears, of course. We see the, um, the different acts like the Homestead Act um, and pieces like that. Um, and we see, just see indigenous peoples being removed on large scale from their traditional ways. And it really solidifies in the 1900s with the assimilation efforts at the turn of the century after the reservation systems are born. These violent acts have uprooted indigenous peoples' connections with their environment and shared culture. As Sean explains, they can still be felt to this day. 
and we see uh, how like where I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota there's been um, such a reliance on on government commodity food program um, that we can see a direct correlation as to what happens to an entire community when their main source of nutrition is coming from a government controlled food system so that's why we see astronomical rates of diabetes obesity heart disease and things like that um, so I think that people really need to um, truly understand um, the history of colonialism and why that affects us and that's the biggest part of the story is why there aren't Native American restaurants all across the nation featuring this immense amount of amazing diversity that we have especially showcasing all of this uh, amazing botanicals that we have across the nation too so um, I think you know people really need to look outside their high school history books and to really learn what happened on the land that they're standing on. While the historical context surrounding this issue is certainly bleak, visionaries like Sean are working hard to provide a better future for indigenous peoples across North America. One of Sean's most exciting efforts is the Indigenous Food Lab, a culinary training and education center founded on indigenous practices. We wanted to use ourselves as an indigenous-focused kitchen utilizing indigenous agricultural pieces, different kinds of uh, seeds, like uh, things from corns and beans and squash and sunflowers um, grown from tribal communities when possible. And a lot of wild foods, especially in our vicinity where we are in the North uh, Woods in Minnesota, um, and really create a place where we can have access and to utilize these food pieces uh, throughout the year, because we really want to use ourselves as a training and education kitchen so our goal is to have tribal communities work directly with us so we can help them develop their own culinary programming tract and using our kitchen as training, education, development, and support. So there's so much knowledge base there that we need to tap into, whereas we look at the colonization of the Americas, um, which brought none of that kind of education, and it, and it was all about pulling resources out of the earth and destroying the earth for profit, you know, and capitalizing off of that, which is obviously not a sustainable model. While people like Sean are tackling this complex issue on an international scale, it is equally important for individuals to be informed on the subject in order to create positive change on a local level. Simple acts like supporting Native American-owned businesses or speaking to loved ones about these issues this holiday season can make a big difference. For more information on Sean's efforts, follow The Sous Chef on all social platforms or check out the link to his website in our show notes. In our next story, we return to Jupiter's Almanac. In Episode 7, Matthew Rayford showcases an oyster dressing recipe that is true to Gullah and Geechee culture. Gullah is used to describe the traditions of African Americans living in the Low Country region of South Carolina, while Geechee is used to describe African Americans living in the Low Country region of Georgia. The Geechee community, along with their Gullah neighbors, are known for preserving more of their African linguistic and cultural heritage than any other African-American community in the United States. They speak an English-based Creole language containing many African loanwords and show significant tribute to West African culture in cuisine and cooking styles. Listen as Matthew gives tips on how to recreate an oyster dressing that can bring Geechee culture and the taste of the Georgia coast to any Thanksgiving dinner table. Okay, so maybe oyster dressing is a staple of your Thanksgiving table, or maybe you want to try it for the first time this year. Now we're going to talk about how to make it. First of all, I would not suggest necessarily using just some regular old canned oysters. 
I would prefer if you could to either get some fresh oysters, practice your shucking skills and saving some of the liquid, or going and finding yourself some fresh oysters that are already set up. Like here, for me, I go to City Market um, right here and just go ahead and grab me a whole big old thing of ooh, some of them fresh oysters that have just been shucked with all of that oyster liqueur in it. Oh my God, I can just... I can taste the saltiness right now. I would, however, say make sure that you're just making a basic cornbread. Even if it's a hot water cornbread, just make sure you don't have any sugar in it. I myself also like a little bit of uh, bacon bits in mine. You want to really like cook that bacon down till it's super, super crispy and then chop it all up. Then use a little bit of that bacon grease to saute those onions off and some of the fresh garlic and all of that stuff as you're starting to make it. Then I toss in a little bit of beaten egg, get it nice and juicy, add that oyster liqueur to it. All of that is going to give it some yumminess. Now at this point is when you should taste. Get yourself a little bit of it, taste it. You haven't put the oysters in just yet. You want to get yourself a nice little taste. See if it has that 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 taste of the sea like the kiss of the sea should kind of be on your lips um, as you uh, start to taste this a little bit then you add your oysters toss it over into a 400 degree oven for about 30 to 45 minutes let it cook until it's nice and golden brown and serve with that fried turkey omg you are talking about lip smacking good right about now it's kind of like a seafood if you think about like a seafood uh extravaganza inside of a dressing. That is what this ultimately comes out to be. For more information about oysters and to get the full recipe for Matthew's oyster dressing, be sure to check out Matthew's new show, Jupiter's Almanac, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also include these links in the show notes. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. The Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture will be hosting their annual Young Farmers and Cooks Conference virtually this year on December 8th through 10th. Programming will cover topics like mutual aid, regional grain economies, land management practices, and much, much more. Whether you're a farmer, cook, butcher, miller, preservationist, processor, or anyone else in the food chain, this conference is for you. Learn more at stonebarncenter.org slash YFCC. 
For our next story, we continue to explore the influence that West African rice farming has had in America. Caroline Fox breaks down the story of Glaberima, a West African rice strain that was once farmed in America as a lucrative and resilient crop. Glaberima's disappearance from our food system remains a mystery, but today its reemergence is helping to reconnect communities with their roots and fill in gaps that history may have tried to erase. In the fields, Glaberima can be seen growing up to five feet tall. When harvested, the rice is hardy and has a deep red undertone. It's believed that Glaberima was a provision on ships during the transatlantic slave trade, which brought enslaved Africans to the Americas between the 16th and 19th century. Once on American soil, Glaberima proved to be resilient against brackish water, making it a nutritious coastal cash crop. Then, its success story was cut short. For culture and history, The American South, because of Jim Crow, wiped out every vestige of African influence when Jim Crow hit. We had 30 years, almost 32 years, of full African freeman production of rices in the highlands called the Midlands, which means a line from inland in Maryland running down through the center of Virginia, going south, down through the center of North Carolina, the center of South Carolina, the center of Georgia, curving out and going through the center of Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and into Texas, believe it or not, after the Civil War. That's Glenn Roberts, founder of Anson Mills. His mission is to grow, harvest, and promote ingredients from the antebellum south that have vanished over time. While the reason for the disappearance of Glaberima remains unclear, Glenn believes racial discrimination against black farmers played a role. A reemergence of Glaberima could reunite African Americans with their ancestors' sacred history. But today, Glenn is taking the back seat, letting a group of researchers redefine Glaberima's narrative. They've got like a bunch of scientists working there. They have a lot of field technicians, tons of equipment, and a buttload of land. They run about anywhere between 1,100 and 2,600 different rices there every year in research. Different rices. That's a lot of rice. What Glenn is describing is the mecca for Glaberima research in the U.S., the Dale Bumpers National Rice Research Center. My name is Anna McClung, and I am the research leader and center director for the Dell Bumpers National Rice Research Center located in Stuttgart, Arkansas. We are a laboratory within the United States Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service. According to Anna, through time, West African strains of rice like Glaberima were replaced by other strains of rice that were simply more productive. But today, Glaberima's promising genetics have helped it reemerge, becoming instrumental to the future of rice cultivation. The Glaberimas are pretty well concentrated in Africa, and they have also been adapted to a wide range of growing environments, primarily in West Africa. So the interest has been to explore whether the Glaberimas might have some novel traits and genes that could be used to put into the species that's used in most cultivated rice. Right now, climate change poses a significant threat to rice cultivation. And this time around, Glaberima will not be written out of history. Instead, Anna and her team aim to utilize Glaberima's genetic properties to enhance a higher-yielding, climate-resistant strain of rice. One of the areas of interest is trying to 
see if there's novel genes in the glabarimas that could be put into cultivated rice to make cultivated rice more adaptable to conditions where we could grow rice with less water or perhaps even under conditions like might be expected with climate change, heat stress during the growing season. These are some of the opportunities we're interested in exploring. The work that Anna is doing reaches beyond the Rice Research Center. Glabarima has been a hidden story within the African-American narrative. And now, chefs, farmers, and even brewers are keeping a close eye on Anna's work. Here's Glenn Roberts again. It's not really us. It's the friends we have in the communities that lost all this stuff that are barely just starting to get their own history back because we threw the history in the trash with the plants. So if a spirit rice can make it back into the communities because it is their sacred rice, it's like first wheat in the Bible. First grain in African culture is rice. There are still tons of question marks surrounding the story of Glabarima, but the future for this West African rice looks bright, promising innovation in our food system and bringing comfort to communities who have been separated from their roots. To learn more about the research Anna and her team are working on, check out the link in our show notes. For our final story this week, Anna Oaks looks at food sovereignty in Puerto Rico and how one food justice collective is working at the intersections of racial justice and queerness. In legal terms, Puerto Rico is an unincorporated territory of the United States. While Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens and pay federal taxes, they're not allowed to vote for president and have no vote in Congress. So it's no surprise that many Puerto Ricans are fighting for either full statehood or independence a fight that continued a few weeks ago as voters narrowly approved a non-binding referendum in favor of statehood. The relationship is one that is very, very fraught. It is one that, as long as Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, will continue to exist. When there is an entity that is in control of your food supply, there is no way that an oppressive structure isn't developed. That's Luce Cruz. They're a member of the Queer Kitchen Brigade, a decentralized collective that works around the mainland U.S. and Puerto Rico to promote food sovereignty among queer and trans, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. Puerto Rico has been held back from self-sufficiency by a history of predatory U.S. lending, as well as the 1920 Jones Act. Which means that anything that comes from any other place in the world that is being shipped to Puerto Rico needs to stop in the United States and is taxed before it is then sent down to Puerto Rico. This significantly drives up the cost of living on the island and has far-ranging consequences for Puerto Rico's sustainability and growth. According to a study released last year, the Jones Act raises the price of shipping cargo to Puerto Rico by more than 568 million U.S. dollars. Prices are $1.1 billion higher as a result, and it's estimated that the higher prices translate to more than 13,000 fewer jobs on the island. The unbalanced and paternalistic relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico became especially evident in the aftermath of Hurricanes Maria and Irma in 2017. It's in response to that environmental destruction and the federal government's stalled disaster relief that Luce and other queer and trans New York-based Puerto Ricans decided to form the Queer Kitchen Brigade. The Queer Kitchen Brigade in its inception was, is still in part, focused on canning and preservation of foods as a form of preparedness for climate change. 
The collective began by shipping jars of pickled and fermented food, along with seeds and gardening supplies, to the island. They've been involved in other projects since then. During the height of the pandemic, they helped distribute thousands of milk crates filled with soil to teach people around New York City how to grow their own food. So we're involved in a lot of different projects that pertain to agriculture and that pertain to food autonomy. They've also moved outside of New York. Luce is currently based in South Minneapolis, where they're building a solar-heated greenhouse with and for the local community to grow food through the winter. Queer Kitchen Brigade has also organized trips to Puerto Rico for queer and trans people of color to work on farms. The idea is to address some of the historical, land-based traumas that Black and Indigenous people carry as a result of slavery and colonialism. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy and creating a space where people can be on the land and feel that joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. The collective is formed by and for queer people. But Luce also draws a connection between queerness itself and biodiversity. And they see the alternative as an extractivist, destructive relationship with the earth. What do we try to suppress, right? We try to suppress the biodiversity. We try to suppress the queerness. We try to suppress anything that isn't homogenous and doesn't look like this heteronormative patriarchy. I think the importance of queerness in humanity has the same importance of biodiversity and sustainability in farming. It is what will keep us alive. That understanding that everyone is different, that everyone has freedom of expression, that everyone can exist in the way that they need to exist because it makes them happy and it means that they're being true to themselves is the key to our freedom. And the fact that even our plants don't subscribe to one particular gender and can change genders on a daily basis or multiple times a day signifies that... We need to become more reflective of that. To support and find out more about the Queer Kitchen Brigade's work, check out their website and social media. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Seth Hartman, Sydney Sims, Caroline Fox, and Anna Oakes. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>